The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all God's people said, Let us rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. Amen. Let us read from uh, Psalm 135. I'm reading from verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O you servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is pleasant. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the psalmist has exhorted us to praise you. We are your servants. You purchased us with your blood. You have called us into your service to be your hands and feet. And we are standing in your house. And it's pleasant for us to be here to praise you. Therefore, we ask you that our prayers and praise will indeed be pleasant to you. And so we come in the name of Jesus to worship you. And amen. Amen. Well, as the close of 2018 is upon us, uh, and with it comes certain rituals... Uh, that require a certain amount of diligence to guard our hearts and in many cases make confession. I asked one of my daughters uh, what sins might be accompanying uh, New Year's and she gave me quite a long list. I'm only going to hold myself to just two. Uh, What might those sins be at the dawn of the new year? Well, the first is the sin of envy. When we return to work and school, the inevitable comparisons we made regarding our Christmas break and our Christmas presents. Oh, nice iPhone. Yeah, I got socks. You got socks? All I got was some black rocks. You got rocks? Anyway, or if this isn't the presence, it could be the experiences. Oh, you went to Hawaii. Oh, you went skiing. Oh, you had all the family over. Somebody invited you to their home for Christmas. No, we just stayed home and watched movies, series on Netflix, that kind of thing. You watched movies? You have Netflix? Anyway. It may not have been a new year, but the Apostle Peter was stretched to be satisfied with his situation when Jesus asked him three times if he loved him. And then he told him the manner of his death. Well, Peter's response, thanks for the heads up, Jesus. No, no, he looked over his shoulder at John, the beloved disciple, and asked, what about him? You see, Peter was less concerned about his future than he was about comparing his goods with those of John. And Jesus' Jesus' rebuke was appropriate. Don't worry about him. It's not your story. Well, a similar temptation at this time of year is to make New Year's resolutions. And it's not that these resolutions are necessarily sinful, but they do press down a road that is spiritually unhealthy. When Jesus announced at the Last Supper that he was soon to be betrayed, Peter piped up and swore that even if everybody else falls away, he would never, he would remain steadfast. He would stick with Jesus even unto death. He was resolute. You could say that this was his resolution. But how successful was he? Well, not very. But this is what we would expect when we take it upon ourselves to try to be better. But trying doesn't provide enough resolution. On the beach at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus restores Peter with three identical questions. Peter, do you love me? Not, Peter, I forgive you, but I expect you to try harder in the future. No, it's Peter, do you love me? So as you consider potential resolutions for 2019, I would commend the following. Commit yourself to love Jesus more 
each day and to be quick at confessing when you find yourself devoid of any or all of the fruit of the Spirit. To be quick to be a confessor, be a quick confessor, as Jim would say. In Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, our hearts are deceitful. We are so quick to forget all of your blessings. We look right and left at our neighbors, envying what you've given them in goods and family and friends and experiences. Lord, search our hearts and reveal this wickedness. Help us to know that just trying harder is not going to cut it. Help us instead to see your love and forgiveness and respond with great gratitude. Help us to be quick confessors when we find ourselves outside of fellowship with you and empty of your spirit. We confess these sins and our individual sins now and Selah. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Thank you, God, for hearing your servants. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. In Lamentations 3, 21 to 24, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is, thy faithful, is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. When Peter fell short in his resolution to deny the Lord, he was not consumed, he was restored. The same compassion that Jesus extended to Peter, he extends to us because Jesus is faithful, even when we are faithless. And because great is his faithfulness and great is his compassion towards us, it is with great joy that I declare to you that your sins are forgiven in Christ. Thanks be to God. The sermon text is taken from 1 John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 10. These are the very words of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. O oh God, our Father, we praise you and we thank you that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld its glory. Father, we ask that you would impress this truth upon us this morning so that our joy may be full. Father, teach us to confess our sins 
and to forgive one another like Christians, like Christmas is true, because it is. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Merry Christmas to you all, and I trust you've had a good week of celebrating and feasting. It's good to be downtown with you all again. John opens this letter remembering Christmas. John opens this letter remembering the incarnation. And so this is what, what he immediately jumps to as he thinks about the incarnation, as he thinks about Christmas, is fitting for us to consider as we finish up our Christmas festivities and begin celebrating a new year. It seems fitting that we meditate on this passage as well. So I want to begin by just working through the text itself briefly so we've, we're, we're fresh uh, with it and then draw your attention to a few particular themes. John, notice, um, echoes his famous gospel beginning as he begins this letter. You know John 1. You've probably heard it before. Uh, John 1, 1 famously begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to talk about that Word being life, and that Word being light, and that Word be becoming flesh and dwelling among us, and we have beheld its glory. That's, that's his gospel. That's John's gospel. And, and here, there's similar themes going on as he begins this letter. He's echoing his gospel when he, as he describes the, the word of life in, in verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Again, that's that same word, in the beginning. He's still thinking about that. Uh, he, what, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked upon, what our hands have handled, the word. He's still thinking about that same idea, the word of life. And then he's going to describe how that word was manifested uh, and its eternal life. And, and so on. And so the, the very beginning of the letter matches and echoes that gospel. The word has become flesh. It is something we have heard, seen, looked upon, and handled. This word is the life manifested from the Father. We see this in verse 2. And the apostles have seen it and heard it and declared it as witnesses, so that all who hear their testimony may have fellowship with them and with the Father, and with the Son, verse 3. And so when they're declaring this, as they're testifying, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we ate with him, this word that became flesh, he says, as we declare it to you, you are hearing it. You are seeing its effects, and you are sharing in this fellowship that we have with him. Now you become partakers with us. In verse 4, John says that this fellowship is the fullness of joy. These things we write unto you that your joy may be full. To know this life, to know this word of life, to touch this, to see this, to handle this, is to have the fullness of joy. And so he says, we're sharing this with you so that your joy may be full. The message they proclaim is that God is light, 
and there is no darkness in him at all. Therefore, fellowship with God in his light means that we must not walk in darkness at all. And the blood of Jesus is what allows us to do that. And so this is what he says in verse 6 and 7. If we have fellowship with him, we must not walk in the darkness. The only way that we can walk in the light and the only way we can walk in the truth is if the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. If we deny that we have sin, if we make excuses, if we blame others, if we try to pretend it away, we are liars. And not only are we lying, but we are basically accusing God of lying, is what he says. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, right? We're saying that the sins that he died for, he didn't need to die for. And so we make, we, we accuse, not only are we lying because we are sinners, but we are accusing God of basically lying, of, of not needing the blood of Christ to cleanse us from all sin. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all sin. So what have you heard and seen and looked at and handled over the last few weeks? What have you heard? Probably some Christmas carols, right? Probably um, the sound of wrapping paper first going on in scotch tape, and then the sound of wrapping paper being torn off, right? The sound of clinking glasses, uh, the smells, maybe we can add to John's list, <laughs> of good food, of hot chocolate, uh, maybe the tastes of eggnog and cookies and pies. Uh, what, have, what else have you seen? You've seen trees, you've seen lights, You've seen joy. You've heard laughter. You've probably watched a movie. You've seen things. You've touched things. You've heard things. You've looked at things. You've handled things. And as, as you have sought to celebrate Christmas as Christians, you have heard and seen and looked at all those things that you've heard and seen and looked at have actually been should have been, opportunities to see and look at and handle the word of life. You say, well, well, we weren't witnesses of the incarnation. Right. But John says that what he has seen and what he has heard and what his hands have handled, what all the apostles saw and heard and handled, they've shared with us so that we might share it with them. And so that's the whole point of Christmas. The whole point of all of it is so that we would continue sharing what John and the other apostles began to share. What they saw, what they heard, what they handled, they shared with the first disciples, with the first generation of Christians. And that's been handed down, down through generations with moms and dads teaching their children and preachers proclaiming the gospel and Sunday school teachers and evangelists and choir directors and all the rest of it passing down the good news of the incarnation, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so as if we're celebrating Christmas rightly, all of it, everything that we're handling and touching and hearing and looking at ought to be an extension of that. What's that tree? What are we looking at? Well, what you're looking at is a picture, a sign of the word of life, that Jesus was born, 
that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, that he is the blessed man whose fruit is always, uh, always flourishing, always productive. His leaf never withers. We're, we're celebrating Christ. We're celebrating the word become flesh. And so we give gifts because the word became flesh. And we open gifts because the word became flesh. And we make cookies and we have big dinners and feasts. Why? To share the fellowship that we have in Jesus. If we're celebrating Christmas like Christians, then all of those things that we have heard and seen and looked at and handled are actually extensions, further manifestations of the word of life that the word has become flesh, that we have fellowship with God through his son by the blood of Jesus, that we have fellowship with one another. And so, so that's the whole point of it all. The whole point of the presence, the tree, the meals, the songs, the cookies, the eggnog, the whole point of it was Jesus. The whole point of it was that the word became flesh. We gave because he gave. We celebrated because he came. We rejoiced because we have fellowship with him and we have fellowship with one another because he became flesh, because he bled and died for our sins to make us right with him and with one another. But this fellowship is only possible because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's, that's, that fellowship, that joy is possible because the word became flesh. There's no other way for sinful people to have fellowship with one another, or sinful people to have fellowship with God. There's no other way to have the fullness of joy unless the word became flesh, unless the word became incarnate. God became man in order to reconcile all things in his flesh. This is actually not an extraneous thing. This is not, this is not something that is just sort of a nice idea or you think, well, it come, you know, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a thing you say because you're a preacher. That's because that's the thing you say because uh, of the gospel, right? But the Bible actually clearly says that it's the flesh of Jesus that's necessary to reconcile us. So here, here are a couple of passages. Colossians 1, for example. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh. Right? He, he reconciled you to himself in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. So the word became flesh in order that we who were enemies in our mind by our wicked works, by our sins, might in the body of his flesh through his death be presented to him holy, blameless, and without accusation in his sight. So it's not extraneous to him becoming flesh, it's central he took on flesh so that he might die in order that he might present us to himself holy and blameless. Or listen to this, Ephesians 2. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. You know what enmity is? Animosity, hatred, anger, frustration. Those are the sorts of things that, that sinful people experience. Why does he always do that? Why does she always do that? Why does that always happen? I try to do something and then boom, right? I was trying to be nice. We justify ourselves, right? I was, I was doing good things and then look, right? Fireworks, explosives, that, that feeling in your stomach of, right? You know that feeling. 
right? That's enmity. That's enmity. Enmity is that feeling, that gut, and it doesn't just stay there, does it? It comes out. It comes out in words. It comes out in attitudes. It comes out in facial expressions. You don't have to say the word. You know, you've been married for long enough, and you can just do that thing with your face. And it's like exploded. You look across the room, and you know she's not okay. And you, and you, you try to pretend. You're like, no, I didn't, she didn't say anything. I, I, there was nothing said. I'm cool. No, you know it's not cool. That's the enmity. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity. Now in this particular passage, Paul's talking specifically about Jews and Gentiles. The, the fact that there was this enmity between Jews and Gentiles, this animosity between Jews and Gentiles, this, this, these various forms of hubris and pride and vainglory and on either side, that, that we're Jewish and we're amazing and God loves us and you're Gentiles and you're outside the covenant and Gentiles looking back and saying, you guys are weird and strange and bizarre the way you live, and, and, and there's this animosity and this enmity. But, but ultimately, it's the law at the bottom of all of it that condemns everyone that creates this animosity, this enmity, knowing that we're guilty, knowing that we're not sinless, knowing that we've contributed to the problem. And this stirs up in our hearts anger and frustration, not only at other people, but at yourself. Why do I keep doing that? I, I, I like my family and I treat them badly. Why do I keep going back to that sin? And there's, there's enmity and animosity and anger and hatred even within ourselves. And then in, in, in that feeling and in that sense of guilt and shame and frustration, we don't know how to handle it and we handle it badly. And it usually spills out and we snap and we break and we hate. And so God became flesh in order to destroy that enmity, to slay the enmity, to abolish the enmity in his flesh. The word became flesh because we have this problem in our flesh. We have this animosity in our flesh. We have this lust and envy and covetousness and hatred in our flesh. And it won't go away. It won't stop. And so the word of life became flesh in order to abolish the enmity. In order to slay the animosity. The word became flesh because that's where the problem is. It's in our flesh. You can't wash it off. You can't get rid of it. So the word became flesh in order to reconcile us to God and to one another. The word became flesh in order to abolish this enmity that is between God and us and between us and one another in order to make true peace and fellowship. This is why the word became flesh. In order to establish fellowship. Fellowship. The fullness of joy and fellowship. 
How is this possible? This is only possible by the cleansing blood of Christ. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Christ cleanses us as we confess our sins to God and to one another. And as the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, we walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship and fullness of joy. This is, what Christ, this is one of the central proclamations of Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could like each other again. So that we would be friends. <laughs> so that we would sit across from one another at a table and, and actually enjoy one another. That we would be in fellowship. That we would be family. This is why the word became flesh. Because in our flesh we have this problem. We have this animosity, and, and, and the, the fact of the matter is, if you're, if you, you know, what happens at Christmas is that, of course, we spend a whole lot more time together, we get less sleep, we drink more eggnog, and what happens? We actually frequently have more animosity, don't we? Right? You're spending all that time together with all those people that you love so much, and then they're doing those things that they do. What could go wrong, right? All this time together, all this food, early mornings, late nights, what could go wrong? Our sin comes out. Our flesh comes out. There we are. We're celebrating flesh. And I mean that initially and in a good way, that Jesus became flesh, that God became flesh, and so we celebrate with stuff. We buy stuff and we wrap stuff and we decorate stuff and we bake stuff and we eat stuff. Why? Because the word became flesh. And God created this stuff, and it's a good gift from him when it's received with thanksgiving. But in the midst of that, what else comes out is all our stuff in the flesh. Our bad attitudes. Our angstiness. Our fussiness. Our complaining. Our anxieties, our covetousness, our lust, our lack of contentment comes out too in the flesh. So what do we do? None of this makes us happy. And so sometimes this is what makes it all the worse. Is it's Christmas time and we're singing songs about tidings of comfort and joy and joy to the world and glad tidings and all this stuff. And you're like, but I don't feel very happy. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my best here. I'm trying. But there's frustrations right below the surface. There's worries right below the surface. Christian joy is real joy because it is built on the truth of Christ. Christian joy is not fake. Christian joy is not pretending everything's fine. Christian joy is not faking it till you make it. Christian joy is not sort of covering it over with the veneer of Bible verses and Christmas carols. Christian joy is built on the truth. This is why it's real joy. All other promises of joy are false and fake if they're not built on the truth. 
As descendants of Adam and Eve, we have not only inherited their guilt and their tendency to sin, we have also inherited their tendency to try to hide their sin. Remember Adam and Eve, they tried to hide their nakedness with fig leaves, and then they tried to hide from God in the trees of the garden, Genesis 3, verses 7 and 8. In the presence of God, all darkness is shade. In the presence of God, all darkness is shade because he is light. There is no darkness in him at all. And so all of our sin is turning away from God's light, and therefore it's an attempt to create shade. It's an attempt to create shadows. It's always an attempt. And so we, we sin, and we create shade, and then we hide in the shade, creating more shadows to try to hide from God. But he is light. And the shade always flees from his light. But we are like our first parents and we try to hide our guilt. We try to cover our shame. We try to pretend it's not there. We blame other people. We make excuses. Well, I was tired. I was hungry. I hadn't eaten anything all day. I've been up half the night. And then she said that thing. And the, the, the children, they're, they're, they're insane. <laughs> I, I'm only human. Right? And, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm just human, and, and they do these things. And, and then Uncle, you know, what's his name, came over, and Auntie, her, she came over, and Grandpa, so and so, and then the neighbors stopped by. What did you expect me to do? I couldn't do anything else. There was nothing else I could do given the circumstances, right? And then we, we just justify ourselves. We vindicate ourselves. What are we doing? We're hiding. We're trying to hide from the God of the universe who saw us snap, who saw us say those words, heard them in our hearts, even if they didn't come out, saw the bad attitude being nurtured, the discontentment, the failure to give thanks and rejoice in all things, even the things you didn't plan. True Christians are still tempted to do this. True Christians who know the truth, who know the gospel, who know that Jesus died for their sins, true Christians still hide. They still make excuses. They still lie. They they, they say, no, I had to correct them. I had to say it sternly, angrily, because otherwise they wouldn't have gotten the point. I, I had to let her know that I meant it. We lie, we hide, we blame, we cast shade. We think we can hide from the God of the universe who sees it all as plain as day. And so John says, in him is light. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we want fellowship with him, the darkness has to go. There's no darkness with him. There's no shade with him. There's no shadows with him. It's all light. It's all crystal clear. There are no ambiguities. There are no doubts. It's clear. He knows the truth. And so do you want fellowship with him? 
Do you want fullness of joy in him? Do you want fellowship with the Father and the Son? Do you want fellowship in your life? Do you want real joy? Then it must be based on the truth. This is why the Bible teaches us that we must, as Christians, deal with our sin right away. Right up the middle. Don't pretend it away. Don't make excuses. Don't try to explain it. Don't justify. Don't vindicate yourself. Just tell the truth and tell it right away. Walk into the light. And this is, I mean, we, we, we know this with our, with our little, with our kids, right? I mean, the, the, ch the child will sin right in front of you and you say, what did you do? And the child says, nothing. He was, I just watched you. You slapped her. You stole the toy. What did you do? Nothing. Right? Nothing. I did nothing. Did you hit her? No. Nope. Did you take the truck? No. Nope. How did you get the truck? I don't know. <laughs> right? This is, this is, right? And we, we are those children. Right? God sees your heart, knows our heart. He knows. How, why do you have a bad attitude? I don't know. Why? Why? What's wrong with you, right? And God sits there and sees your heart, knows your heart, knows you completely, sees it all. What, what's wrong? I don't know. Tell the truth. Deal with it right away. Walk into the light. The longer you take to put something right, the more shade you're trying to put on it. Time is one of the shades we try. Time is one of the ways we, well, next week. And we want to wait till you know, everything's just right to do it. No, you're hiding. You're trying to use time as shade. Walk into the light. And this is why the Bible over and over again says, do it right away. Do it right away. Jesus says, if you bring a gift to worship, you're going to church. You're getting ready to tithe and give an offering and you come and you bring it to church and you remember that your brother has something against you. Jesus says, leave your gift. Go be reconciled to him first and then give your gift. God would rather you be reconciled to your brother, to your sister, to your children, to your parents than for you to give an offering. It's better to be 10 minutes late for church and actually worship in spirit and in truth than to stand before God as a liar. It'd be better sit in the car for five minutes, ten minutes, make it right, confess your sin, forgive one another, walk into church and actually worship God in spirit and in truth. Paul says that when there are divisions in the church, especially at the Lord's Supper, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. The Lord's Supper is to be an act of fellowship. We call it communion. Why do we call it communion? Because we're communing with one another. We're symbolizing, we're enacting the fact that we are in fellowship through the body and blood of Jesus. That's what it means. And we're sharing it and we're passing it down the aisle. And we're giving it to one another. And how can you do that if the guy next to you or the gal next to you or the person a few aisles away from you and you're thinking, man, I don't know about you. 
if you have a grudge in your heart, if you have something, if there's animosity between you, if there's enmity between you and someone here, it's not communion. Paul says you can call it communion, call it Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper, what you're celebrating. Of course, sometimes you've done everything you can, and so you, t- you, you, know, you celebrate and you say, Lord, as far as it depends upon me, I want to be at peace with all these people. I have forgiveness ready for all of them. Anybody. They, I've got it. I'm ready. I'm ready to be at peace with all of them. And that's the best you can do because sometimes they have nothing. They won't have anything to do with you. You let them know, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to make things right. When you're ready, I'm ready. But you don't wait. You take care of it right away. If you have anything against anyone, you go make it right as soon as possible. Don't let time be your way of hiding. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil, Ephesians 4.26. Letting the sun go down on your wrath is giving place to the devil. There's not actually that many places in the New Testament where the Bible actually says, if you do this, the devil might get you. I mean, there's not actually that many passages that are that explicit and clear. This is one of them. Don't go to bed angry. Don't go to bed like that. Don't let the sun go down like that. Deal with it as much as you possibly humanly can. Take care of it. Because when you go to bed like that, you're leaving room for the devil. You're leaving a door open for the devil to get in. The devil is the father of lies, and he is happy for Christians to pretend to be in fellowship when they're not. He's the father of lies. He's great with those kind of lies. We're happy. We're a happy family. We're doing great. We're here at church, aren't we? We're happy. We're Christians. We're good. And you're lying. And the devil's great with that. Great. Keep lying. Because he knows underneath there there's bitterness and it's growing. And it's only going to get worse. So do not give an inch to the devil here. You want to fight the devil? Tell the truth, confess your sins, forgive. That's how you fight the devil. That's how you slam the door closed. Say, no, not in my house. Not in my family, you don't. Not in my heart, you don't. As far as it depends upon me, I'm going to be at peace. I'm going to extend peace. I'm going to confess my sins. I'm going to tell the truth, the complete truth, the whole truth. No shade, no excuses, no blaming, no finger pointing. I'm going to seek forgiveness for what I've done from God and from those who have wronged, and I'm going to be ready with forgiveness for all those who've wronged me. When fellowship is broken, go make it right. The word became flesh in order to abolish the enmity, and the enmity is abolished through the blood of Christ, and it's applied as we confess our sins. When you confess your sin, you're applying the blood of Jesus. You're saying the blood of Jesus goes here. It goes right here. On this sin that I committed to you, the blood of Jesus goes here. Please forgive me. I sinned. I lied. I broke my word. I was angry with you. I said things that were unkind, that were harsh, that were angry. Please forgive me. The blood of Jesus goes here. He died for me for this. When fellowship is broken, go make it right. Confess your sins quickly. John clearly says that the heart of Christian fellowship is fullness of joy. 
And this is echoed in other places. He says that the heart of Christian fellowship is fullness of joy. And this is echoed in other places, specifically related to confession and forgiveness of sin. So Psalm 32, for example. Psalm 32, David sings, Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Happy, blessed, is the one whose transgression is forgiven. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. What's it like not to confess your sin? What's it like? It says, my bones got old. I felt like an old man. I felt like I was dying. I was roaring all day long. I was, I was just, it felt terrible. And I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Who are these people shouting for joy at the end of Psalm 32? They're not, it says the upright in heart. You say, well, yeah, the upright in heart. Well, how do you have an upright heart? An upright heart is a heart that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. An upright heart is not a perfect heart. There's nobody perfect. Nobody has a perfect heart except Jesus. But an upright heart is the one that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And what do you do? You rejoice. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Do you want fullness of joy? Then confess your sins. Likewise, in Psalm 51, David prays, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Wash me. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Psalm 51. So lying about our sin, trying to make excuses, justify ourselves, is a great way to not be happy. It's a great way to have no joy. The, the irony is, is rich, isn't it? Like, I, I'm, I'm fine. Leave me alone. I'm fine. Which tells you what? Not fine. Right? When they say, I'm fine, I'm fine. That means they're not fine. And you keep telling them, I'm fine, right? And you're not fine at all. There's no joy in that. And, you, and what are you trying to do? You're trying to protect yourself. Why? So you'll be happy. And you think that if you confess your sins, you won't be happy. You say, if I confess my sins, it'll be embarrassing, it'll be shameful, it'll be humiliating, and I'll be sad. But it's actually the opposite. The Bible says that if you confess your sins, then you'll be happy. If you confess your sins and you say, the blood of Jesus applies here, right here, where I did this, then you will be blessed. You will, for, for, a first, for the first time in a long time, actually have joy. When you stop trying to protect that scar, when you stop trying to protect that cancer, when you stop trying to protect the thing that's actually ruining you, that's actually stealing your joy. Lying about our sin, that it isn't there, that it isn't a big deal, that, that it's their fault, that there's nothing else you can do, and lying about God who's in heaven, who sees everything, lying about God, saying you can't, he can't see it, no, it's not really there, I don't know what you're talking about, God, or that Jesus didn't really need to die for it. Thanks very much, Jesus, but I didn't need your blood there. I didn't need you to die for this one. This is not a sin. All of that is the central cause of sadness and sickness and depression in this world. 
It's the central cause of sadness and sickness and depression in this world. Why are so many people being medicated for depression? Because no one loves them enough to tell them the truth that the reason why they're so sad is because they won't confess their sins and get God's forgiveness. I know this is a complicated place, and I know that there can be medical things involved as well. I'm not denying that at all. But the central cause of the sadness of this world is our guilt. And Jesus died to take away the guilt. And if you won't tell them that, if you won't give them that medicine at the heart of it all, then you won't actually help them be set free. You cannot enjoy fellowship with God or other Christians while guilt and shame weigh upon you. God won't let you. This is actually wonderful. God in his kindness and his mercy will not let his children enjoy life in their sin. You know, it's, it's, it's like when your body is, you know, you, you ate something you shouldn't have eaten. Or you got something, and, it's, and your body is not happy. And what's it going to do? It's going to get rid of it. But that, that's actually because your body loves you. Your body doesn't want you to be sick. Your body wants to get rid of that poison, get rid of that sickness. And so it's not going to allow you to be happy. And you're going to feel awful until you get rid of it. Non-Christians, non-believers, non-Christians are not happy either because they're living in the world that God made and they're not in fellowship with the God who made them. They're not really happy. They pretend to be happy. They drink to be happy. They, they play with stuff and try to be happy with the stuff that God's given them, but they can't experience the fullness of joy because they don't know the one who gave it to them. They're not in fellowship with the one who's giving them life, and so they can't be fully happy. They can't experience joy. They have this agony as well. But Christians especially... People who know Jesus especially have an added grief of grieving the Holy Spirit who lives in them. Ephesians 4.30 says, when we live in sin as Christians, as believers, as born again, as people who have regenerated hearts and have the Holy Spirit inside us, we have the added grief of the Holy Spirit being grieved inside us. And when we grieve the Spirit by sinning and refusing to confess our sins, the Spirit grieves us. Because God loves his children, his hand is heavy upon them in their sin. Because he loves you, he is heavy upon you. Stop. Confess it. Let it go. Own up. Tell the truth. Stop making excuses. Stop blaming other people. Stop trying to hide in the shade. Because God loves his children, his hand is heavy upon us in our sin. It's one of the ways that I've known in my life that I'm a Christian. <laughs> I grew up in a Christian home, in a Christian family. And I, there wasn't a moment in my life where I, you know, I didn't have the Saul on the road to Damascus experience. Some of you have had that. Some of you knew. You were in the dark and all of a sudden God broke you open and there you were and you knew you were naked and God could see it all and you became a Christian. But many of you have grown up in homes, in Christian homes, and you don't remember a day when you, you didn't exactly know Jesus but one of the ways I know that I know Jesus is because when I sin, I feel awful. I feel disgusting. And in looking back in my life, it's one of the ways that God's just been, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. Don't you feel disgusting? Yes, I do. God in his mercy, God in his kindness, assuring me of his presence saying, get rid of it. <laughs> get rid of it. And sometimes I'm the one, no, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. Doing fine. 
And it's fine, all right, it can make it feel worse. And it feels worse for a couple more days or a couple more hours, a couple more weeks. And I always break. Because God loves me. That's how I know I'm a child of God. The greatest horror in all the world is God giving us up to our sin. That's the greatest horror in all the world. God saying, fine, have it your way. That's the greatest horror in all the world. God saying, okay, have it your way. Go your own way. Giving us up over to our sin. Saying, fine, thy will be done. That's the greatest horror. Christ was born in order that we might know God. That we might know the God of heaven. He came to earth so that we might know him. That we might have fellowship with the Father and the Son by the Spirit. That this world that we see and hear and touch and handle with our hands would not just be stuff, but we would truly see God in it and through it all. This is the God who made all this has come to live and die and rise again in order to make us right with him, in order to abolish all the enmity, all the animosity, that we might have fellowship, and this fellowship would be the fullness of peace and joy. This peace and joy is maintained and enjoyed. It's not just magical. It's not just automatic. It's not like you just become a Christian and then it's just joy. No, you become a Christian and there is joy, but that joy has to be cultivated. That joy has to be maintained. That joy has to be loved and protected and guarded. And it's, uh, it's enjoyed and it's maintained by the continual application of the blood of Jesus to every bump and every bruise by the confession of sin and forgiveness. That's how you maintain that joy. You want that joy. Then you have to maintain it. You have to change the oil. And you do this by applying the blood of Jesus to it. Confession of sin agrees with God. That's what confession means. It just means agreeing. You agree with God that that was sin and Jesus had to die for it. That's what confession is. So you name the sin. Don't, don't name it, I messed up. No, no, that's not a sin. I messed up. I lied. I lusted. I stole. I coveted. Right? That's sin. Name the sin. Agree with God that it is sin. Name it biblically. Ask God to forgive you and ask any of the offended parties in your life for forgiveness. Don't say, my bad. Say, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Remember that God forgives us by promising not to hold our sin against us for the sake of the blood of Christ. This is how God forgives us. He promises not to hold our sin against us. He promises. And God is a God of his word. When God promises, he never breaks his promise. This is what forgiveness is. And so we must forgive one another like that. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Forgiveness really is not based on our feelings at all. People sometimes I say, I just don't know if I could ever forgive that. Yes, you can. It's called a promise. You just promise not to bring it up again. He said, but I don't feel very forgiving in my heart right now. I, nobody cares how you feel. Right? How, how did God feel? It has nothing to do with the feelings of God or your feelings. It has to do with are you going to obey God or not? We must forgive as we have been forgiven. Forgiveness is not based on our feelings. Forgiveness is based on the fact of the cross. Jesus bled and died for this sin to take it away. That's the fact. And God promises not to hold your sin against you anymore because Jesus bled and died for it. 
And so when someone else confesses their sins to you and says, please forgive me, yeah, it, it might hurt, it might sting for a long time, but your duty is to forgive. How many times should you forgive? Jesus has said something about that in the Gospels, didn't he? 70 times 7, right? You can't count that high. Why? Because that's how God forgave you. Right? Is God in heaven saying, you again? Right? Oh, you, oh, that again? No, God's not in heaven doing that. He promises to forgive us. He says, I will not remember it anymore. I will not hold it against you anymore. And he says, you go forgive like that. Yeah, it might sting, it might hurt, but your job is to promise not to bring it up again. That's what forgiveness is. I promise not to hold that against you anymore. Because God forgave me like that, I will forgive you like that. When we are faithful to forgive as we have been forgiven, the Holy Spirit works true comfort and joy into our hearts and homes. This is why we sing tidings of comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. What is this tidings of comfort and joy? Is that the word of life became flesh and dwelt among us so we could hear him, so we could touch him. And he has manifested the life of the Father and the Son so we might have fellowship with him and with one another. How? Through the blood of Jesus that washes us clean from all our sins. And when his blood washes us clean, we are in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship and we have fullness of joy. This is the only real joy in all the world. There's no other real joy in all the world. This is it. And it's the joy of Christmas. This is joy that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you for Christmas. We thank you that the word of life became flesh so that we might know you, so that we might be in fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes away every stain. What nothing else can wash away, you have provided perfectly in the blood of your son, Jesus. So we praise you and we thank you for him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. First John 4 verse 20 says, If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? This principle is found in various ways throughout the Bible, and that is that our relationship with God and the people around us are inextricably related. You cannot separate your love for God and your love for those who bear his image. If you love God, you will love those who bear his image. And this is underlined by the fact that no one has seen God, but we have all seen his image in the people around us. Of course, sin and death interrupts this and puts enormous strains on this. Those who bear God's image frequently do not act very godly. But this is why Jesus came. The eternal son of God, the perfect image of God, took on human flesh in order to renew the image of God so that by knowing him, we might be changed from glory to glory into his glorious image and reflect that glory to those around us. The first application of this love is in the family, in the home, the bedroom, the living room, your dinner table. The pharisaical tendency in every son of Adam and daughter of Eve 
is to put on special graces for visitors, strangers, people we don't know as well. While being indifferent, harsh, or thoughtless for those who bear God's image in our own home. For those who bear God's image who are closest to us. But how can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your spouse, your children, your roommate, whom you have seen? In Luke 24, two disciples suddenly recognize the risen Jesus after he's died when he breaks bread and shares it with them. In the moment, we will break bread together and share it. And your prayer should be that we not only know Jesus, that we not only have fellowship with God through Jesus, but that we see Jesus in the people sitting right next to us, that we would love them in Christ. The people you see the most should be the most loved because you love God and you love God because he loved you first. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you that you sent your son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, so that he might take the curse for all our sin, so that we might be washed clean and have fellowship with you and one another. Father, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The good news is that God, in his mercy, sent his son. And his son is sufficient for everything that we need. His blood was shed for all of it. And he knew about it before you did. He knew about it before you were here. And he's provided all of it for you. And the good news is that you just take it, receive it. Apply it now, today. You don't say it's too late, it's too, I'm too far gone. No, he knew where you would be today. And he calls you today and says, come. Receive with believing hearts the blessing of your God. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through his grace. Comfort your hearts today, now, and establish you in every good word and work. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.